Hey there, this is your host, Daniel Eccles, and you're listening to the Learned Opportunity Podcast. You know, we just want to have a little bit more of a peace of mind. We want to be able to dream bigger. We want to have more alignment at our work and in our home life with our values so that we feel like we are fulfilled in the work that we're doing and the things that we enjoy at home. We just want to be able to have better outcomes from the decisions that we make. Well, how does that happen? The thing that we need is the right opportunity. And that's why we're here, to gain more opportunities in your personal and professional life. And today we're going to be talking to Mark Demaz. Now, Mark Demaz is one of the people that I, I look up to greatly. I am a little bit of a, a nerd when it comes to some of the stuff that he is going to talk to you about. And this is a great one if you are a pastor or in the church world. But I think that anybody can really get some great information from Mark on how to find more opportunities and create opportunities in your life. Mark's going to talk to you a little bit about expanding your horizons and dreaming bigger by being able to utilize your assets that you have fully. He's also going to help you align your skills with purpose. He's also going to help you to change your mindset. And we need to start chasing after some different things if we're going to develop a new and exciting disruptive business or a church or something that you want to create in your personal life as well. But before you do that, you have to be able to think differently. There are, are four different things that he will suggest to you. That's passion, prayer, patience, and persistence as things that you will need in order to better align your skills with your purpose and utilize your assets fully. So Mark is doing a whole bunch of different stuff, and you'll hear a little bit more in that introduction about him and who he is. And I'm just excited to have you be able to listen to him. So look forward to, to hearing how you enjoy this. Please reach out. I want to hear from you about how you're enjoying the podcast. I want to help you not have to go back to where you started and to continue to have more opportunities in your personal and professional life. So give me some feedback. Let me know. Rate this uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts and help me out in that way. Now let's go to this interview. Gwendolyn joins us once again on this one with Mark Demaz. Hi there, this is Daniel. And I'm Gwendolyn. Welcome to Learned Opportunity Podcast, where you can gain opportunities in your personal and professional life. We are here today with Mark Demaz. And Mark has had a big influence, actually, on where I'm at now. That is a long story. Um, Mark, but he might be your biggest fan. Probably. <laughs> but after seeing him at a church planting conference out in California called Exponential, some of the ideas and things that he was talking about just really resonated with me and got me thinking uh, about opportunities and, and different things that we can do as the church with our assets, with our community, different things like that. And so it's a long story, but I'm really excited to to be here with Mark. Mark is a founding pastor of Mosaic Church in Central Arkansas, Little Rock, right? 
and uh, founder of Mosaics, which is a network of pastors and, and leaders, people that are like-minded practitioners that are focused on establishing healthy, multicultural, and economically diverse organizations. Mark's authored multiple books on church economics and the multi-ethnic church movement, including The Coming Revolution in Church Economics and Disruption. And he's also a host of the Mosaics Today podcast with Rachel, which focuses on moving church ministry from rhetoric to results. That was a longer introduction, but I'm just really excited to have you on, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet, Daniel and Gwendolyn. It's great to meet you. What did we miss? Anything from the introduction of <laughs> What else should uh, people know about you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a lengthy uh, introduction, which basically means I'm old. Matter of fact, I uh, turned 60 a couple weeks ago. So Happy everything birthday. that I say, thank you. Everything that I say now is right. And everything I say is wild. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, but yeah, any of that just means you've lived a long time, right? But my wife, Linda, and I have been married 34 years, four kids, four grands, and enjoying this season of life. But I'm as busy, just like everybody, but as busy as ever and excited about ministry. I was thinking at 68, with good health, you can live 80, 90 years these days, maybe longer, but but obviously I've lived most of my life. And but I'm like, man, God, I feel like it's kind of like that. I think that was that Patrick Henry guy for the American Revolution. Like, I only have one life to live. Like, I'm so excited about where what, where things are headed, the disruption in a positive way that's going to reposition the church to better advance the kingdom of God in the 21st century. And I'm so excited about that. I'm like, gosh, I wish I was 40. So I had a whole nother 20 years, but to add it to my life, because I think what where we are and what lies ahead over the next 7, 10, 20 years is from where I sit, very exciting. Doesn't mean it's easy at all. Very difficult, very entrepreneurial, very innovative, but it's very mm -hmm. disruptive. This will not be church as normal when we get to the other side, or it won't be your grandma's church, so to speak, when 2030, 2040, that kind of stuff hits. So I, anyway, I'm very excited. That's why I'm passionate to be on your podcast today. We're really excited that you're here. So we focus on different areas of opportunity on this podcast. So some of those include economics or uh, career, community, personal development, fun and hobbies and things like that. And um, you're a, a great fit of multiple of those different things, maybe community, economics, spiritual life, and personal development, things like that. But where have you found some opportunity these days just in your either personal life or your professional life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just as I mentioned in the personal life, you said what was left off, just talking about family, mm -hmm. where my kids are 32 to 23. I won't go into all the background, but the point is they're, they're, it, it, we finally got all four of our kids, 32 to 23. They're they're like 97%, not only on their own, if you will, but to a point where, you know, when your kids are young, you're their hero. Everything you say <laughs> is right. They love you. They listen to everything. And then there's a stage, who knows what age that is, 11, 10, but to the mid twenties where you don't know anything, you know what I'm saying? And then, but then they hit their lips and they get to the mid twenties and, and start pushing late twenties. And it's all of a sudden, Hey, I guess my mom and dad know a thing or two. So we're right at 97% past all those years where we knew nothing. We couldn't do anything. <laughs> and we're everything that's wrong in their life is my, it's because of me or my, or their mom. Well, and then also you, you, you turned 60 and you said that you're exactly. right about everything now. So that's exactly add that right. to the percentage. Well, 
Yeah. So anyway, personally, the opportunity now to enjoy life with my adult kids, my grandkids, we've been doing that, of course, the last uh, couple of weeks celebrating my birthday and Thanksgiving and all. It's just a really, I feel like we've entered a, a new era for our family and certainly the last era that I'll have with them and Linda going over the next number of years. So that's the opportunity to just spend more time, enjoy, not push, not feel responsible for them, find freedom in that. So that's great on the personal side. But yeah, vocationally or professionally, man, like I, I mentioned in my first comments, there is so much opportunity today. And the church is down. But you guys know it in one sense. It doesn't mean the gospel is down. Jesus isn't down. And there's lots of churches and Christian organizations that are rocking and killing it. Okay. But generally speaking, mm -hmm. this is not an era where, you know, the, the church is down. And if you think about like stock, like our stock is really low right now. Yeah. Okay. But when, but so a lot of people bemoan that, oh my gosh, the nuns and the duns and people are leaving the church and people don't want to be pastors anymore. And churches are shutting their, okay, see what I'm saying. And that's all glass half full. And those things are true. And those things are, they're worth considering, worth having a conversation about. Mm -hmm. But Christ is the same yesterday, today, or forever. The church is going to be here. And the point is, but it's not going to be the way it was. And when, you know, how you make money, I'll just give a little insight. Five, six years ago, whatever it was, my son, Will, came home from college. He goes, Dad, you got to buy a Bitcoin. And I'm like, what the heck is a Bitcoin? <laughs> I had zero discretionary funds. I bought one for $250. That's all I saw. I'll give you $250. We'll buy one. I don't know. Let's say a year later, he comes home from college. He goes, you got to buy a coin called Tron. I go, what is Tron? TRX, look it up. It's three cents. Buy it. Within four days, I had $120,000 in a Coinbase account. Okay. Now, over the next two weeks, that went down to 35,000. And I pulled out my 5,000 real dollars that were in there. And I said, I'm out. I don't want to live this thing. But my point is there was a time where I had 12 Bitcoins. Man. Okay. I had 12 and today they're worth what? 50, $60,000 of Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. But I got out of it all. Now, one thing personally, that's not the way I want to make money. It's too stressful. That's just not, I, I don't do stocks. I don't, I do. So I played with that for him, but I'm glad I'm out. But I remember the day. <laughs> when I had 12 Bitcoins and bought it at 250. Here's the point. You want to buy low. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm. You want to yeah. buy. And so that's opportunity. Yeah. So mm. when people are looking at the collective situation of the church right now, and let's think about it like a stock, like stocks or Bitcoin. Yeah. This is the time to buy. Mm -hmm. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? Because this thing is going to come roaring back. And I want to be a part of that journey. I want to get in low. And, and mm -hmm. I, of course, we're not going to sell high. But the point <laughs> is, there, is a, high, there is a high coming back. These things cycle. I've certainly lived long enough just in my short life that stuff today that young people and millennials are talking about in terms of church, they're, oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. Well, we were doing that in the 80s. And then it falls away and it comes back. So mm -hmm. some ways, there's nothing new under the sun. On the other hand, disruptive innovation is taking place and it's taking place off the mark, off the grid, so to speak. And that disruptive innovation is going to blossom at some time in the future. This is not a time to back away from the church and from the opportunity to see God do significant things in a disruptive way. No, this is the time to put all your chips in, go full in, uh, and be part of that disruptive innovation and revolution. Mm. But you can't invest necessarily in, in the old. You have to be investing in an innovation and a disruption. So what are the traits or the 
pieces that you're looking for within the church, if that makes sense to, to invest in? Yeah, absolutely. The I, I'd, I'd probably summarize an answer, try not to get long-winded on that, by essentially saying that, generally speaking, most pastors are not leading innovation or, or leaning into the future, leading change. They are simply managing decline. Mm-hmm. Most pastors in America today, and they don't know it, they're like frogs in the kettle, Okay but they're managing the client. They're not leading disruptive innovation. They're managing the client and they don't know what their frauds in the kettle. That's not a slam on pastors. That's not a, they're bad people. They don't know it. And, and what don't they know? Okay. Which gets Daniel to the point of the question. What they don't realize is they are chasing 20th century metrics, but it's the 21st century. Mm. So you said, what are some things you invest in? What do you got to know? Again, can you give an example of a 20th century oh yeah, and a yeah, 21st century? Absolutely. Century? I'm, I'm getting, uh, yes, I'm about to do that. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> that was pivot to a metaphor. So you have computers, you have operating systems. Okay. Most pastors are running 20th century operating systems in their churches and have not upgraded to a 21st century operating system. And that's why they're just managing to climb. Okay, so what are some of those metrics? So in the 20, 20th century, you played for size. The, mm-hmm. the effectiveness success of your church was measured by numbers, dollars, and buildings. In the 21st, it's not about size, it's about influence. And the greater your diversity, the more broad your portfolio, mm-hmm. so to speak, the greater your influence is going to be in your community. And it's not at all connected to Sunday butts in the seats on a Sunday morning. But most churches are still chasing size on a Sunday morning. What you want to be chasing is influence. Let me give you an example. We have the largest food distribution in Little Rock. We serve 67% of our entire zip code. Depends on our church for anywhere from three to five healthy uh, meals and four or five days of groceries every single month. Mm. Uh, About 20,000 people. The Many times, in fact, last week, just prior to Thanksgiving, we had a a delegation, so to speak, of four people from a church in Missouri came down. And as a part of their three-day stay, they visited what's called the orchard. They watched the operation. It's led by homeless people working side by side with very wealthy people. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. Like many delegations that come to that program, they will ask how many of these people, 150 cars, let's just say representing roughly four to 4.5 per car, let's say seven, 800 people, total representation on that day. And they go, how many of these people go to your church? <laughs> so let me put you guys on the spot. What, what do you think I, what do you think I say? I would say that probably not that many would go. I don't know. So I love that you said that, and this isn't busting on you or whatever, but that, that right there is the 20th century metric. Uh They say, how many people go to this church? I go, every one of them. Oh yeah. Every one of them, every single one of them. They're at the church. They're there for that Mm. service. It's Tuesday. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's it's food distribution day. Uh, every single one of those people go to my church. What are you talking about? Who go? How many of these people go to your church? Every single one of them. You're right. It's a flipping mindset. Yeah, totally. And see, the point is, so we're on this first point of size versus influence. Size in the twentieth. So, and see, I'd like to get a hold of the guy who who said that the only number that matters and the number that defines the effect and the success of your church is how many people 
are in your church on a Sunday morning on average. Mm. Who said that? It's not in the Bible. Like, where did that metric come from? If I got like right now, we're about 300 ish or so on a Sunday morning. We were five, five fifty. We're about 60% back after COVID at the moment. I think the national average is 50% uh, or less than 50. People are just trying to get to 50 in a lot of cases. And I'm not saying we're great, but we're just over that maybe 60 ish percent right now. So let's say I got 300 people there. Well, I had, I had 750 people on Tuesday. <laughs> Who says I can't tell you a thousand? How big is your church? A thousand people. I don't want to say that because of pride. Like I'm not, I'm fine telling, oh, 300 here. But see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Who set the bar that says mm. your size is Sunday morning? And that's what everyone's chasing. But we influence more people on a Tuesday than we ever do on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. but, but the point is how we minister God, how we represent in terms of being the hands and feet of Jesus on a Tuesday, and how we influence people in terms of being peacemakers, et cetera, gospel-centric, is very different. The worship, if I can say it like that, it, the worship on Tuesday looks very different than the worship on Sunday, but it's all spiritual. It all counts. So I'm too deep in the weeds, uh, Daniel and Gwendolyn, but the bottom line, 20th <laughs> century, all. you chase size. 21st, you chase influence. 20th century, homogeneity. Mm. 21st, multi-ethnicity, multicultural, right? In terms of your church organization. Uh, 20th century, what else can I tell you? Ties and offerings. Mm -hmm. 20th century, ties and offering. 21st, create multiple streams of income. 20th century, the church is a spiritual entity. 21st, spiritual, social, and financial. So I could go, I could give you more, but the point is those are some of those metrics. And that's part of the problem because most pastors and leading organizations, denominations, networks, are still chasing 20th century metrics, but it's the 21st. Do you have any sort of advice towards changing your mindset? Mm -hmm. How does somebody figure out that the metrics are changing? How do you take that first step towards thinking in this new way? I'm going to give you four P words real quick, just so I don't forget them. Your passion that's rooted in a calling, that's under undergirded by prayer, then patience and persistence. You got to play a long game. Mm -hmm. This stuff doesn't come out and, you know, you're, you're talking about in terms of church planting, new work, social enterprise, entrepreneurship, whatever you want to talk about, you're talking about seven to 10 years to get from survival to stability. And another seven to 10 to get from stability to sustainability. But in the church planting world, I'll just tell you this. They tell you, oh, you'll be sustainable in two to three years. There's no way. You don't even have any clue. When somebody says that, I have no clue what they're talking about. And I won't go into that. My book, Coming Revolution, explains what I call the myth of sustainability. You're talking about seven to 10 years just to get from survival to stability, another seven, 10. But see, most people don't want to chase that. See, it's, they got to have it now. Mm -hmm. Your patience, your persistence is what brings this stuff out. This kind, this season, this era it, it, it only comes out through prayer and fasting, so to speak. Now, I don't mean that in a spiritual way, but patience, persistent dependence on God. You got to get up every day. You got to stay up every day and resist the temptation to quit, resist the naysayers because they don't get it. See, everybody's at the top of the bell curve and they, that, they think that's it, but that's already passed. That's a lag measure, not a lead measure. So that resilience of spirit that is rooted in your calling, mm. And the ability to stay passionate and patient, I'm sorry, patient and persistence as you chase that calling, 
and do it over a long period of time. That's the only way you're going to get to true effectiveness that is lasting in terms of whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a social enterprise, church plant, what have you. So that kind of mindset has to be there from the start, a realistic expectation of how long this is going to take, how many naysayers, how many sand bullets are going to throw rocks at you. And, and, but you keep the blinders on the horse. Mm-hmm. But, but if you're chasing popularity, if you're trying to be in the mainstream, if you're trying to be, get to where the bell curve is at the top, you don't realize that's, all, that's the result of years. It's already a lag measure. And instant uh, success yeah. that takes 20 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. My, that kind of mindset, realistic expectations, the length of time, speed of transition, but standing tall and chasing your dream until others catch up. But most people don't want to do it because they're trying to be like, just put it, take a church. I was working with a church recently and there's a, they used to be a big church, different issue over the seven, eight years down from say, you know, 2,500 to 300. There's a church up the street. I don't know what, maybe they're at 3000 or something. So there's still like some remembrance of who we were looking at this other church and going, we got to get back there. You see what I'm saying? We got to, we got to hire the right people. We got to make the right moves to get back there. And now they're looking at the church up the street at at top of its bell curve, like this church used to be, and we got to get back there. I'm like, no, you don't want to get back there. God bless them. Let them do that. You see what I'm saying? That, but that's not the future. And so then repositioning that and having the ability to articulate that from a uh, biblical, primarily from a theological and biblical uh, rationale, and then, of course, from the promising practices and all that. So that's also needed. So you're, I'm just trying to summarize what I'm saying. You write expectations on the front end, mm-hmm. rooted in a passion, a calling, that you're prayerful, patient, persistence over a length of time. By keeping the blinders on, don't look to who's doing what over there. Do what you're called to do. Stay at it and and outlive your critics. Good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Uh, that's very clear. And by the way, it's not just outliving your critics. You're going to win your critics mm. because I can give you an example. I could use well-known names in the Christendom that I could say to you right now, how they told me I'm crazy. And now they're all trying to do it. I'll give you one example. No name. I went to exponential. You brought it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I spoke in Phoenix to a group of Acts 29 pastors. Okay. And they weren't Acts 29, but reformed and there, it was Acts 29, but it was broader than that. It was this network, but it felt as if it was the Acts 29 mindset back in the day and, and very reformed in this group and all that. There's like 50 people in the room. And I'm talking about multi-ethnic church and the gospel. I'm making theological argument or whatever. And, and, and so we do Q&A at the end. One pastor, he stands up, a young, sharp guy, I'm going to say mid-30s. He starts challenging me and he's going, man, just preach the gospel. Like, we don't even be talking about multi-ethnicity and whatever. You just preach the gospel. I'm like, haven't we been doing that? Like, maybe, I don't know. I think, haven't we all been preaching the gospel? But we got a white church. We got a black church. We got a poor church. So if it was just as simple as preaching the gospel, how's that working for us? We just got to trust Jesus, preach the gospel. So it just was over and over again, resisting my theological and, and practical arguments and, and, and defaulting to just preach the gospel, because that's going to get it done. And in part, he was pushing back on where I was talking about being intentional in terms of empowering diverse leaders and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so that happened. So two years later, we go to Exponential. It was a year, one year where they moved out of Orlando, went to Tampa. They do a pre-conference. I do pre-conference for them. 
workshop. So I'm there early the first day. I'm walking around getting my stuff set up and getting ready to teach my pre-conference attendees. I hear, Mark, Mark. I look around. There's a pastor moving my way. We get closer. I see, and I go, huh, he looks familiar. He goes, you probably don't remember me, do you? I said, well, you look familiar. And I hope I can say this. You can edit out later. But he goes, I'm the asshole that stood up and challenged you back in Phoenix two years about building a diverse church. And I said, just preach. Oh, yeah, you're that guy. Hey, man. (laughs) We talk, we chat. He goes, you'll never believe what I'm here teaching on today. I go, what? He goes, how to empower diverse leaders and hire and build a diverse staff team. What changed between that challenge? I wish I could tell you we, because we went our separate ways, but I never forgot that. And so Mm. when I said earlier, outlive your critics, it's not just about outliving your critics when you are, and I don't mean right in an arrogant way. When your gut, God has said, thus it will be, this is what Mm. I want you. You don't just outlast these people. You go that direction. And in time, the wake of what God is doing and what God's called you, it's going to start sucking in people, the naysayers, they're going to get with the program or they get it, get in or get out. But the good hearted folks that just didn't quite understand in the early stage, a little fear, whatever, they're going to get caught in the backwash mm-hmm. and they're going to join you and they're going to advance it. And I could give you so many well-known names, right? That 20 years ago, didn't take me and or others like me very seriously at all and thought it's destined to fail. Very famous name that once told us people want to go to church with people who look like them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Mm. And four years ago, I was at a conference that his name is all over. And the opening message by him was on John 17, right? Which is a passage in John 17, 2023, that if we will be one, the world will know God's love and belief. And that's the foundation of my theological argument that I wrote back in 2007. Mm. A lot of the resistance and, and it comes with multicultural, multi-ethnic church environment. And, and one thing that we talk about on here is the opportunity is not very equitable. So how do you help create opportunities within a multicultural or multi-ethnic church movement? Yeah, there's one is, this is probably the best way to say it, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of idealism in the American church today, as there is with, with people. And again, at 60 years old, I can look back and the younger you are, there's a lot of idealism. And then you Mm -hmm. live long enough, you hit your lips and you get to a point of realism, right? So in, in this space, so first of all, you're out from a standpoint of privilege and power, all that, that's been majority culture for 400 years. Everybody knows it. And there's unfair advantage, equity and systems exist. I a hundred percent agree with that. And they have to be dismantled and reconfigured, if you will. Now two, that's mm-hmm. the idea, but some people want to deconstruct and dismantle them without a plan to replace them. Or yes. they might want to go, here's how it works. You're the white leader of the church. You need to step aside and hire an African-American to lead the church. Okay, that African-American is as human as I am. And just because it's an African-American leading the church now, he's is susceptible to sin or getting things wrong, mm-hmm. or maybe not even sin, just making wrong choices. And the church implodes as I am. So it's not just that idealistically simple. And, and so some people don't, they don't recognize privilege. They don't want to have anything to do with it. No, man, my daddy pulled himself up by the bootstrap and they have no concept that my daddy got up at 4.30 and milked the cows and he was working hard and everything we have is because he did it. Yeah, but he owned the land. 
See what I'm saying? So you have no clue. Yeah, he worked hard, but he owned the land. The other people were working hard and sometimes twice as hard and they couldn't own the land. So there's no clue about that. That's one side. But then the other side, like I'm saying, is just so Mm -hmm. ideal and unrealistic. That's not going to happen. So having said that, the question has two parts. How do I personally do that? And how would I encourage a collective church to do that? Mm -hmm. And all of that really is rooted in Philippians chapter two. So Philippians chapter two, Paul's talking to a multi-ethnic church, encouraging unity like he always does. Every theme, the theme of every book and letter that Paul wrote was the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. And when he's talking unity, he's primarily talking about Jews and Gentiles, which today would be black, white, Asian, Hispanic, rich and poor, men and women. All right, Galatians 3.28. So in Philippians two, he says, beginning of verse one, he's talking about since we share the same spirit, have the same mind, etc. Because of Christ, he says, make my joy complete by having the same mind, purpose, intent on one spirit. And, and a part of that argument, in the verse four verses, he says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but rather regard others as more important than yourself. Do You see what I'm saying? Remember, don't just think of your own needs, but also the needs and concerns of others. Now, we read that, particularly most people in America, the West, no matter what your ethnic background is, but certainly white people, we read that going, hey, don't just think about myself, think about others. But the context, he's basically saying, if you're a Jew and the church, don't just be thinking about what the Jews want. You got to be thinking about what the Gentiles want too. Mm. That's what he's talking about. In our context, hey, you're white. You can't just say, I want Hillsong music every Sunday or or whatever. I don't know, elevation, whatever white people are into today. You got to think there's black people here. We want black people. I need some gospel. We we can't just think about our own people group concerns. We to build the kingdom of God. So the local Mm -hmm. church reflects God's love for all people, not just some. We got to think about the needs of all people groups here. That's what he's talking about. But in the West, we think every verse is talking to me, the individual, Mm -hmm. but he's talking to collective group. So that's what he's saying in the verse four verses, each people group to to make this thing work, to build a healthy multi-ethnic church that reflects God's love for all people on earth is heaven. Each people group can't just think about their own concerns. They have to think about the concerns of the whole and other people groups. And that's how it works. Then in verse five, he says, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of who someone who did that. And this is who you should follow. And of course, that's when he launches into the kenosis passage in Christ. Have this attitude. What's the attitude? Don't just think about your own people group and your own personality and your preferences and your past experience. Think about others. Have that attitude in you because it was also in in the attitude Christ Jesus had, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? I'll just break it down for you. Hundreds of years, people don't know it. They think it's a mystery. If Paul, you know what he means. What he's talking about is God had all power. Jesus had all power. He was omnipotent. He had all the power. You want power? There's nobody had more power than Jesus. You want privilege? Throw yourself off the temple. Angel will catch you. Uh, You want position? You're seated at the right hand of God, man. There is no one who ever lived on this planet who had more power, privilege, and position than Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he says, who although he had this power, position, and privilege, he did not regard power, position, and privilege as something to keep to himself. The word is grasp. It's to clutch. Like I got a treasure and I put my arms mm-hmm. around. Nobody's going to get it, man. I'm going to lock it up. You can't get to this. A great example of this is when I was a kid, 
and maybe I'm dating myself here, but we used to play a game on the schoolyard called King of the Hill. So it was a little game. Maybe there's a little hill and all the little kids, you try to scramble up to the top of the hill and somebody gets up there and you stay on top by pushing others down. See, Jesus didn't come to be king of the hill. He came to be king of the world. And if you're going to be king of the world, you got to go down and push others up. It's disruptive. Mm. So he says this attitude, he could have clutched, kept to himself, his power, his position, his proof, but he came down. He emptied himself. This is the kenosis. He emptied himself. And really, it's a better word would be say to leverage. He leveraged his power, position, and privilege. He came down and gave it to us and pushed us up the hill so that we too, as joint heirs, have power in the spiritual realm, privilege in the spiritual realm, position in the spiritual realm. I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I don't need to go through a priest. I can, get, I can talk to God right now. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And he did all that. And, 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 and Paul says, why did he do that? He says it was driven by humility and obedience. He humbled himself. And it was driven by humility and obedience. And, and therefore, Paul ends that passage in five, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He says, therefore, because he did that, God... Uh, gave him the name above every name, and and he's highly exalted. So think about it. It's okay. He was exalted before. But now, because he emptied himself, humility, obedience came down, pushed others up, gave him power, position, and privilege. He's highly exalted. So here's the deal. In our country today, every demographic group is fighting either to attain or to maintain mm. power, position, and privilege. And the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul, in the example of Jesus, you want power, position, and privilege, let it go. Leverage it. Go down and push others up. That's how you get, quote, highly exalted. You see what I'm saying? But it's disruptive because we don't do that. Dr. John Perkins, a mentor and, and very good friend, taught me years ago. He said, you, you, he said, Mark, you've heard that expression, I give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you know, you feed him for a lifetime. He said, that's all well and good, but there's a step beyond. He said, because at the end of the day, it's not just about teaching someone to fish, you want to help them own the pond. You want to help them own the pond. And that gets at your equity question, and that gets at the response, driven by the theological argument I just made in the example of Christ and humility and obedience, what I do personally and what I encourage churches to do is I want to go down and leverage whatever power, whatever position, whatever privilege that I have, you have, our church has. I mean, there, I got, Af got African-American friends. Maybe they went to Yale and Harvard. I went to Mesa Community College. They had educational privilege, right? So privilege and power, it's a continuum. It's not either you have it or you don't. Mm -hmm. But of course, we as white people started, had, we got a head start. But the point is, whatever measure of power, position, and privilege you, this life has afforded you, or that you have otherwise earned and attained. Leverage that power, position, privilege, go down in humility, obedience, and help others own the pond. Paul did this. That's what I was doing before our time together today. I'm on the phone with an African-American friend of mine who's trying to get him a, a very good paying job and a great worship position at a church I'm helping to lead. Last night, I was on the phone with uh, about a Hispanic guy and an African-American guy, our staff search side of Mosaic's Global Network, we're a boutique. We help position people of color 
in very good jobs and positions and churches for their own benefit, for the church's benefit, to build multi-ethnic churches. That's what we do. That's why we're a little boutique in the staff search side. But we leverage our relationships. We leverage our network. And we look for people who have that gifting, that calling, that passion that might not be seen by others. And we, we not in an arrogant way, but we pride ourselves in finding those people and saying, and, and we do that with white people too, in, in terms of life. But my point is, that's the answer to your question. Yeah, It's not idealism. Like that's not going to work. Yeah, Radical, just flip the thing, pull down the statue. What statue you plan to replace it? Well, I don't know. We just need to get rid of that statue. That's not my good friend, Chris Williamson over in Nashville. They pulled down a statue and they put up a better one. It's a national, international story. So proud of him and what he did over there. But on the other hand, you can't ignore power, position, privilege, and all that. So mm. we got to swim that middle lane and it's rooted in Philippians chapter two. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Very good answer. Before we wrap up here, just opportunity. What are you excited about these days? Yeah. But aren't you not? Let me just say by way of teaching, not just, I'm excited about all these things, but what I'm excited about is from my perspective, more and more people are coming around to what we came to realize and understand and began chasing 20 years ago. And as by way of teaching, answering a question, but also if folks are listening to the podcast and particularly for church leaders, We've been playing a one-dimensional game for too long. That's 20th century metrics. We got to play a three-dimensional game. I'm excited about that. And more and more churches are starting to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And of course, through the Mosaic Global Network, we help them do that. What do I mean? Imagine, let me just say it like this. An American football team is actually a team of teams. You ever think about that? Mm. It's made, one American football team is actually made up of three teams called offense, defense, special teams. Those are three separate teams that are a part of the one collective team. Those teams play different games. Offense is a very different game than defense. Defense, very different game than special teams. The games are so different that each team has its own head coach. Hmm. We call them coordinators, the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator. I'm learning the a lot about football right now. <laughs> <laughs> The, the games are so different. Not only do they have their own head coaches, so to speak, the players who play those games never play on the field at the same time. In other words, take a Tom Brady, well-known quarterback, by the way, Gwendolyn. I know that one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> won a championship or two. You'll never see Tom Brady on the field with the defense because that's not the game he plays. He plays the game of offense. You'll never see him on the field with special teams. He plays the game. So the team, they have different head coaches. They have different they're on the field. They don't play at the same time. The teams have different metrics. Like you don't ask a defense when it comes off the field, how many points did you score? They're like, yeah, every now and then we intercept, uh, we return a pick six or we cover a fumble, but you don't understand. That's not our job. Our job is not to score points. Our job is to stop the other team from scoring points. So you, when you think about it like this, it's a synergistic effort. And to win a big game like a national championship or the Super Bowl, not only do you have to have three teams, but you but those three teams simultaneously and individually have to be firing at a very high level and minimizing mistake and therefore playing synergistically or you don't win. Mm -hmm. You could score 30 points in your offense, have a great day, but if your defense can't stop the run, you don't win. You could have a great offense and a defense, but in the last three seconds of the game, if the kicker hits the uprights or the snap goes bad, special teams failed, you lose the game. In the American church in the 20th century, we played a one-dimensional game. So think of a three-legged stool, offense, defense, special teams. Let's translate that to the American church. 
we have a one dimension. Most churches play a one dimensional game. They have an offense. They have no defense. They have no special teams. Okay. And I'm not equating spiritual things to the offense, but if you'll stay with me for a second, let's call the first leg of this church stool, the spiritual team led by a senior pastor, generating income through tithes and offerings, evangelizing, discipling, worship, children's ministry, visiting people in the hospital and the sick. You see, all the, that's the spiritual game plan, and it needs to be played by the church, the spiritual leg of the church. Very few churches actually play a social game. Justice, compassion, mercy. I'm not talking about sending 50 bucks or 100 bucks over here and there or taking your people across the ocean when nobody across the street knows your name. I'm talking about establishing a separate nonprofit that lives like two sisters in the same house that's led by an executive director that generates income for the team through grants and donations that a church wouldn't otherwise qualify for. And all your justice and compassion and mercy is played on that second leg. Again, for the reason I suggest, particularly in terms of economics and Mm -hmm. funding, and that's your nonprofit leg. That's the defense, if you will. The special teams then is your financial leg. And I'm not talking again about tithes and offerings. This is where you are leveraging the assets of your church, the people, money, and facilities to advance your mission, bless the community, right? In every way that you'd want to do that, meet needs, et cetera. But at the same time, leveraging your assets to generate some measure of profitable income, ROI. That, and so that team is led by CEO types. And the way it generates income is through smart business. You're not trying to make top dollar. But as I told pastors recently in a city I was working, if you keep giving everything away for free, you're not going to be here in five years. So What I'm excited about, Daniel and Gwendolyn, is more and more churches are recognizing I can't just play in the 21st century. I can't just have an offense. I've got to have a defense and I've got to have a special team or special teams. And again, in our world, I've got to build a spiritual team, a social justice, compassion and mercy team. And I've got to build a financially sound economic team. And again, senior pastor, executive director, CEO types tithes and offerings, grants and donations, for-profit ROI, all of that playing center individually, but synergistically is how we win in the 21st century. And at the end of the day, I'll call this good stewardship. In the American church, good stewardship is typically defined in these three ways. Uh, Number one, you got to take care of what God's given you. God gave us this building. There's a pothole. We got to fix it. Somebody poked the hole in the wall. We got to fix it. So the HVAC went out. We got to replace it. Managing what you've been given. Number two, accurately reporting what has been given to you in terms of donations. And number three, clearly communicating that to your donors. In the American church, that's called good stewardship. In the Bible, that's not called good stewardship. In the Bible, good stewardship is you gave me five, here's your five, and I made you five. Mm. You gave me two, and I made you two. One guy sat on his asset. One guy sat on his asset, and he's called a wicked, lazy steward. Mm. The American church is sitting on billions and billions of dollars of buried assets in the ground. Buildings that sit empty from week to week, Monday through Saturday, and that's all pre-COVID. Land they own, that's some church with $2.5 million endowment of the bank, 60 people in the church, nobody's getting saved, the community's not being engaged, but by golly, they're so proud of the fact they have $2.5 million in the bank. Mm. We are wicked collectively. We are wicked, lazy stewards. 
We've got to reverse that. That's what I'm excited about. And more and more churches and ministry leaders and even non-faith-based nonprofits are realizing we're going to have to get away from a single-dimensional game mm. and play a multi-dimensional game if we're going to win, so to speak, advance the kingdom of God effectively and credibly in the 21st century. Wonderful. And if listeners want to connect with you um, and learn more, how would they go about doing that and connecting with uh, Mosaics as well? Yeah, it's really easy to do. Just go to our website, mosaics.info, M-O-S-A-I-X.info. It's real easy. There's buttons on there. Hey, click here for a conversation. All that comes to me. I, one of the things that just surprises me all the time, I talk to so many pastors and ministry leaders, and they're like, oh my gosh, we didn't think we'd get you. Like I'm some big deal or something. Like <laughs> you actually talk to people. I don't know what they're expecting, but there's no one else on the end of the line. It's me. But the button is just click here for a conversation. Super easy. It comes to me. We set up time. I'd be more than happy to talk to you. And of course, beyond that, you mentioned a couple of books. If people are interested in what I'm talking about here today, I mean, there's multiple books, but a great place to start would be the book Disruption, Repurposing the Church to Redeem the Community, Thomas Nelson, 2017. That's on Amazon, of course. And there's other books, but that gives you the game plan, if you will. And then the other books break out into the different legs, but disruption is the entire game plan, the why and the how of what we need to do to be effective and credible in the 21st century. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, for uh, sharing all this information and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Great to learn from you today. I feel like you gave me a lot to process and think on and some of which is going with other things we're learning and talking about. So that was just perfect. Thank you. For sure. You bet. It's great to meet you in person, Gwendolyn and uh, Dan. We'll be talking with you again and God bless you guys in your work. And you as well.